You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, you are freshly returned from the wilds of Everett, Washington. The mean streets of Everett. How you doing this week? I'm doing okay. Now, where is Everett? It's outside of Seattle? Yeah, it's like 20 minutes north of Seattle, or 20 minutes if there's no traffic, which it seems like there always is. It's like 20 miles north of Seattle, which when I drove to the weigh-ins on Friday afternoon, it took me an hour and a half. Jeez, wow. Yeah. Well, that must have been a rude awakening. You know, especially when you go from a town like Missoula to somewhere like Seattle, and you remember... Oh, yeah. If it takes you 12 minutes instead of the usual 10 to get from my house to Chad's house and you feel like, oh, man, this traffic is a bear, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. Uh, in fairness, it took you, what, 51 minutes to get here today past the time that we were supposed to start recording the okay. show? Okay, you're going to do this? And then you you're got doing this you, now? You, I just want to let everyone know that when you arrived, you blamed, quote, a slow internet connection That's right. for your arrival. I had to upload some videos. It took a long damn time, uh, but I'm a professional, so I got it done. And uh, then I showed up here to be berated by you on air. Are we talking about the speed bag? No, we're not. You did not upload the speed bag today? No, I did not upload okay. the speed bag. I shot a bunch of videos when I was in the mean streets of Everett, and I was uploading those. I'll have you know. But we are. We're still calling it the speed bag. That's what we're doing. Okay, just checking in on that. Yep. This week's co-main event podcast is once again brought to you by Fulton and Rourke. Fulton and Rourke is a men's grooming company that creates products built for the way men operate. And we're pleased to have them back with us as the flagship sponsor of the CME. Their solid cologne smells great and is designed to go anywhere you do. On top of that, their bar soap is just a damn brick of excellence. It's designed to exfoliate your skin with Moroccan red clay, while the combination of eucalyptus, black spruce, and sage nourishes your skin. That's right, Chad. It's the dog days of summer, and if you want to avoid smelling like an old sweatshirt somebody left too long in the washing machine, Fulton and Rourke suggest their fragrance, Tybee. It's fresh, clean, and perfect for this time of year. You can buy it in one of Fulton and Rourke's signature metal containers. Those babies are refillable, so once you buy one, you're pretty much set for life. You know, not to... Not to break with the script too much here, but Tybee is actually my favorite of the Fulton and Rourke fragrances. Is that right? I would say that probably like a lot of our listeners, I don't consider myself to be a quote-unquote cologne guy. But one whiff of Fulton and Rourke's fine products, you might be singing a different tune. I know I'll pat on a little bit of Tybee after the gym or if I'm going to do something where I know I'm going to be sweating a lot, which frankly is almost everything. and uh, Or if I'm taking my special lady out on the town. I rock the Tybee. Would have thought you more as an Escalante guy, but well, all right. I've, I've gotten some Escalante tucked away for special occasions. Yeah, it's more of a fall scent. Right now, CME, don't worry, I'll, I'll read your part here. You right did now, not send me any C other part. That's it. That's the only, that's all the part I got. Man, you've screwed Check this your up. email. Right now, CME listeners can cash in on a special offer. Just go to FultonandRourke.com. That's R-O-A-R-K and use the code CME at checkout to receive 50% off your total purchase. That's Fulton and Rourke. Dot com. We can just edit this later. Yeah, we'll just edit that part out. Uh, ben, did you know that the people out there are shit-eating wild men for the Dundasso t-shirt designs? I saw a person with a Dundasso t-shirt at the fights in Everett. See? And I said, hey, nice t-shirt. And he just looked at me baffled. 
I got a nice email this past week during the UFC uh, 201 that Danny Boy Downs, friend of the podcast, was out at the bars, and someone commented on his Dundasso shirt, and I think that they uh, became fast friends, it and seemed like. Danny Downs took a drunken swipe at them. That's how I picture that that going down. It might have gone down that way. Yeah. The f- fellow may not have lived to tell the tale, for all I know. The Dundasso shirts are back for a third run at Cotton Bureau, which I know everyone will be mad at me about, even though I have nothing to do with it. Uh, but just in time for fall, this is what I did have something to do with. We went ahead and added some hoodies. What? So anybody out there looking to get their hands on a Dundasso hoodie, I think you got nine days left before this particular run gets pulled off the market. I'm not going to say it's the last one because then a bunch of assholes will go request to try to buy it and make me look like a fool. Uh, but yeah, you do look foolish. right? Hoodies now. are available for sale. I got one coming for me in the mail special. So I'm going to be wearing the hoodie of the fake martial art that we made up on our podcast about professional fighting, which will be fun to explain to everyone when I see them. Well, I'm just saying my birthday's coming up and I would like cash. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast in round number one. So Tyron Woodley traded in his reputation as a guy who chokes in big fights in exchange for Robbie Lawler's belt. And now the welterweight title picture is totally off the rails. What else is new? And in round number two, the CME's Puget Sound correspondent Ben Folks is back from his sojourn to Everett, Washington, and he will be in studio to regale us with stories from the World Series of Fighting. Did he? Ha- did it happen in a multi-use sports arena where volleyball practice went down on the other side of the curtain? Where's the best place in Everett to score late-night eats? And did he bring home any of that state-sponsored sticky-icky? What? And in round number three, have you guys seen the fight card for Saturday's UFC Fight Night 92? If you haven't, my advice is, don't. All that plus just saying stuff and are you fucking kidding me, but first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Jimmy Wong. He writes, how about my boy Nikki Thrills landing the old left leg cemetery on Ed Herman? Probably the best head kick finish seen in a minute. Please find time to shout out the fighting Al Capone, a.k.a. the Miner, a.k.a. Nikita Andreevich Krilov. Jimmy Wong bringing the heat with this question. That's a solid question. Yeah. You see that in the email and you're like, well, we've got our opener. Yeah. I know what we're going to talk about first. It's efficient. There's no wasted space. And shouting out the boy Nikki Thrills. First of all, did we used to say Krylov or was that just me? Nikita Krylov? Because I noticed on the broadcast this past weekend now it's it's Nikita Krylov. You know, I feel like that is one of any number of names where it just depends on the night and who's rocking the mic. And I don't know if it's these fighters are going to the commentators and being like, you know what? You've actually been saying my name wrong for like a year and a half. Here's how to do it. Or if we're just changing our minds midstream and going with completely different pronunciations. It feels like this happens with a bunch of fighters. I don't I don't, I, know, I don't at, care for it. At some point, there's got to be a statute of limitations, right? Where like a dude has been in the UFC so long that we're just like, bullshit, we're not changing the name. They're not changing the pronunciation of your name at this point. Yeah. Now, Nikita Krilov probably coming, coming up at exactly the right time because uh, it feels like he's he's actually like an up-and-coming light heavyweight fighter at this time. So, I mean, after that, we might... The Ed Herman knockout might be the line of demarcation between the point where I'm willing to accept a different pronunciation of the man's name and when I'm not. So I'm glad that we're we're going with Nikita Krylov right now instead of keeping it with the Krylov. I mean, he has had like eight fights in the UFC. So there's been ample opportunity to figure out what the guy's name is. But fine. You know, the the Ed Herman uh, knockout, 
this one, I feel like not only was it just a kind of just picture perfect laying it right in there at the end of this exchange and then doing the cool walk off maneuver mm-hmm. that he does. Mm-hmm. But especially afterwards when he's complimenting Joe Rogan on his shirt and I'm forced to wonder, does Krylov know or Krylov? Krylov. Does Nikki Thrills, does he know what his gimmick is? Is he in on it? Is it, you know, we kind of have a Sage Northcut question here because he seems like he's got this real, like, emotionless, but also kind of weirdly endearing, almost like a, a, a little boy in a, in a man's terrifying body. And it seems like people, MMA fans are going to, they're going to dig that. Yeah. They're totally into that. And I, noticed, I, wonder, I wonder if he's aware of it. Well, here's the thing. I noticed that another thing that changed for this fight, he changed his nickname because remember, he used to just be Al Capone, right? Well, I think he changed it for like the last fight, right? Oh, did he? He's the minor. He's the minor. And I was hoping that somebody would ask him why he's called the minor and that he would like deadpan Russian accent be like, because I am mining for light heavyweight gold. <laughs> and then we would know wow. he's in on it. That he is knows, not a great accent. He knows the, do you want to say it in your, in your Seinfeld voice, what is that the impression? That <laughs> My you Woody got? Allen. Woody, yeah, your Woody was, Allen. Hey, the Woody Allen was not bad. No, it was, I'm not. I'm not going to do you a favor by. by it was terrible. It to you. But more to the point, Nikita Krylov looked pretty outstanding in this fight. Uh, looked super good on his feet. Frankly, was kind of destroying Ed Herman for a while. This is one of those fights that where I feel like for the few first few minutes, the only thing that I was able to take away from it was how tough Ed Herman must be because he was getting his ass handed to him in this fight. And you could see him periodically like get punched in the face and then kind of take a step back and take a deep breath, but then come back firing, which lets you know that that Ed Herman is a tough as nails dude. Uh, But the knockout sequence in this from Nikita Krilov where he just he high kicks him in the head almost with a nonchalance as part of an ongoing combination that was just uh, beautiful, if a, if that can be said about a grown man getting knocked unconscious by getting kicked in the face. Yeah, no, it was pretty sweet. And, I mean, it kind of made me wonder, too, about Ed Herman uh, fighting at light heavyweight. Seems like that could be a, a tough road ahead there for Ed Herman. Yeah, that's. I mean, if you want to try to undermine this victory, like this is basically a dude who used to fight at heavyweight fighting a guy who probably ought to be fighting in middleweight. Right. right. But I but it does make me wonder, you who recently looked at the state of the light heavyweight division with the potential of John Jones being out two years and said, just shut it down, man. Just shut it down. And now here you have Nikki Thrills, 24-year-old light heavyweight, left leg cemeterying fools out there. You feel a little more optimistic? Oh, I mean, yeah. Now he, here's one. We need a hundred, a hundred more Nikita Krilovs out there. He's won five in a row now at light heavyweight since he lost his 205 pound debut to Ovin St. Prue back at UFC 171, which in retrospect, maybe no shame in that, right? Sure. Then kind of gets it back together. Uh, I guess at this point is the Ed Herman knockout the kind of thing where now you would like to see the minor start digging for light heavyweight gold against some known contenders because you look at uh you look at the guy he's guys he's beat so far there's a lot of Stanislav Nedkovs on this list and is it time now for him to start fighting you know more Ovin St. Prue style dudes okay uh one thing though we should mention about the Ovin St. Prue loss came right around the time that uh Russia annexed Crimea your boy Nikki Thrills is from the Ukraine so he had that on his mind. I believe he said that afterwards that he he, ha- he, he was ha- distracted. He had some heavy stuff on well, his mind. I guess I can I guess I can understand that. Yeah, 
There you go. Um, but I think the problem with your your question there is, as we've noted before, there is a steep drop off in the light heavyweight division right now. You have some guys up there in the the top half of the top ten who are really really good, and then the talent level dips down in a hurry. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's that's totally true. But I guess so you want Nikki Thrills against Lusty Gusty? Is that what you're saying? No, I was thinking more along the lines of like. Do we throw him out there against somebody like Shogun Hua, you know, a guy who at this point has crossed over into uh, into uh, litmus test okay. territory, I guess you would say. I'm not going to sit here and say I wouldn't watch Nikki Thrills versus Shogun Hua. Or, or what about like Jimmy Manoa, you know, like I think I think you can still even though it's a thin division, I feel like a guy like Nikita Krilov can still uh, climb the ladder, if you will. You know, there's enough Corey Anderson's out there. The bricklayer? How about the miner versus the bricklayer? Well, there you go. I mean, I feel like we just talked ourselves into it. Yep. Next question this week comes to us from Dave Douglas, who writes, Seeing as how we've already got a Joanna champion, I was thinking maybe now we just go with something like Carolina Challenger? I don't know. I'm just trying to help you guys out, he writes. Uh, which I appreciate. Thank you, Dave Douglas. I'm going to try to do this one time. Carolina Kovalkiewicz. That's not bad. I think that's what it is. Yeah. I think it's Carolina Kovalgevich. Uh Triple K works as well. Yeah, but then we would have JJ versus Triple K. And Special K? What are we doing here eventually? Having a good time? I don't know. Carolina Challenger? You don't like that? Well, that one has I mean, some limitations one, on one it. One fight, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, it does. Uh, and Here's I, what I want to know. If if Kovalkevich beats Joanna Yajajic when they fight, does she like... President Barack Obama will eventually have to to hand over the at POTUS Twitter handle. Does then Joanna Yadjechuk hand over Joanna Champion to Carolina? Well, I could see how Carolina would become Carolina Champion. Also, the question for me is, does she also become Champy? Because for me right now, you say Champy, and I'm thinking of Joanna Yadjechuk. You know, I, it's hard. It would be a hard transition for me. To start thinking of somebody else as my well, champion. I mean, I think we should keep our hearts open okay. to Carolina Kovalkiewicz, just right. depending on how things go. I mean, I feel like she goes out there and beats Rose Nama Yunus this past weekend at UFC 201. Speaking of which, when you get to Nama Yunus losing to Kovalkiewicz in a title eliminator, maybe for the person who's going to go fight Yedjechik, I mean, is that the point when you start wishing we had a Judy Smith out there? <laughs> As a strawweight contender. <laughs> I know you're wishing I that mean, with your difficulty pronouncing names. We have, a, one might say, an international flavor at this point. Although, less international all the time since it seems like Poland has taken over. That's true. Well, you know, and this, especially coming off of uh, Rose Nama Yunus's her kind of breakout moment against Paige Van Zandt, and now this, this win really looks like it means something. Uh, and it also is one of those where I start opening my eyes a little bit and going, wait a minute. Is women's strawweight just going to turn into the most dependably fun division out there? Because it seems like we were talking about that crazy week of uh, International Fight Week, Red, White, and Fight Week, uh, where he had UFC 200 and all that stuff, and we came out of it going, you know what, the best fight of that week was UNA and J-Chick and Claudia Gadelia. Um, and then you have this one, which takes fight of the night honors, and starts to seem like, wait a minute, maybe uh, women's strawweight is actually going to turn out to be the the glamour division of, of women's MMA and not so much women's bantamweight with Ronda Rousey gone. Yeah. Um, 
I kind of felt like that before they brought it in. And uh, at this point. Oh, you were down with it before it was cool. What you're saying. I think we talked about it on the show. Okay. But. uh we'll review the tape. Now, now it, maybe it's starting to kind of live up to that, that uh, expectation. Uh, the point I was going to make about Karolina Kovalkiewicz before uh, I made my Judy Smith joke and got sidetracked. She gets this win over Rose Namajunas by split decision uh, in a fight where it, it seemed like coming in that it was going to be the one that gets Namajunas over the top and puts her back into a title fight. Uh, and she was kind of handling her business early on. And then Kovalkiewicz gets her in the clinch near the end of round one and starts beating her up with the knees. Uh, and that kind of laid out a blueprint, I think, for the rest of the fight. It's hard for me to imagine Kovalkiewicz having that same success against Champy, right? Like, it'd be a completely different fight. It, it, they've fought as amateurs once before, and weirdly enough, Joanna Yajicic choked out Karolina Kovalkiewicz. But, like, if I mean, it would be fun for us as fans, right, to watch these two get out there and, and match their stand-up skills. But it just seems to me like if you're Karolina Kovalkiewicz and you go in, in there against Joanna Champion thinking you're going to box her up, get her in the clinch, and knee her in the stomach a bunch of times, that might not work out for you. Well, you, you know, you could allow for the possibility that she would have a different game plan going into a fight against Joanna and Jacek. But, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons that Champy is Champy right now is because there are not too many ways that you can map out to beat her that you can do for five rounds like we saw claudia gadelia like her strategy and it seemed like okay maybe that would have worked if you could have kept that up uh but she can't and so i don't know it does seem like you're going to have to have somebody who either has great takedowns and submissions to to finish that or somebody who can match her on the feet and so far we haven't seen a whole lot of people who can do the latter Next question this week comes from the Cheeseburger Walrus. He writes, so how about Jake Ellenberger? Oh, no, he wrote, so just how about Jake fucking Ellenberger? Okay. Excuse me. All right. Just when you think he's down and out and apparently released from the UFC, according to Dana White, he comes back and destroys Matt Brown. Not saying this will be a career resurgence by any means, but can we take a second to appreciate the effort Jake put forth Saturday night? This was literally his last kick at the can, and he booted it over the fence. Also, does this spell the end of Matt Brown's top 10 status, or do you still consider him among the top at 170? Uh... Yeah, this is an impressive performance from Jake Ellenberger with a first-round TKO win over Matt Brown, uh, basically via body kick, followed up by punches. But this is not a thing that you typically see people do to Matt Brown. Like, Matt Brown's normal thing is that he's super hard to kill. And in this in this fight, Jake Ellenberger goes out there and ends up taking him out in a minute and 46 seconds. So that is an impressive victory. And frankly, exactly the kind of thing that... that a guy like Jake Ellenberger needed, even though he's only 31, I think we had already started to write him off a little bit um, after going one and five, dating back to 2013. So to go out there and, and and knock out Matt Brown in the first round, I think the cheeseburger walrus has it right on the head. It's not like we think Jake Ellenberger is going to be the champ now, but like, uh, yeah, man, this will get you back in the conversation. Yeah, definitely. Well, and you mentioned his age, only 31, but he's got like 40-something fights, so... He's been at it a long time. There's a lot of tread, a lot of a lot of uh, wear and tear on those tires. I remember I remember him biting in the IFL. So that shows you how long he's been around. The IFL's been dead for nearly 10 years. Uh so yeah, I, I think that it, it's always one of those things that I wonder about when somebody we feel like we've written them off, even the UFC has written them off and he says basically just give me one more chance, show you what I got and he goes out there and does it. Uh and 
it does seem like in this sport we we fall prey so often to the mentality of whatever we saw last just we think it defines your entire career and everything you you can do and will ever do uh and then you see something like this and you think like all right Maybe is this the time he had it together or did he just go out there and have one night? I think Matt Brown himself is a good example of that because remember people wrote off Matt Brown when he had that string of losses and everybody was saying, hey, wait a minute. Why isn't this guy cut? He really fits the mold for the kind of guy that the UFC cuts. And he comes back and he's been awesome for the UFC. Uh, I mean, and but then even this question, we're going to turn around and do the same thing to Matt Brown that we're talking about having been done to Jake Ellenberger. Yeah, the career of Matt Brown is super interesting, I think, as you just implied, because he did have that stretch where he went one and four from 2010 to 2011. And then he turns around and crushes, what, seven in a row, seven wins in a row, uh, including a win over over the Wonder Boy. Uh, and I, wasn't that the Wonder Boy's UFC debut? Something like that. I think it might have been something like that. It was an early fight in, in his yeah. UFC career. Uh, but yeah, he beats Mike Swick. He, he beats Jordan Meehan in that run, Mike Pyle, Eric Silva. Uh, and so he had really kind of refashioned himself into a surprise welterweight contender. And then now all of a sudden he's back to one and four again from 2014, uh, from the summer of 2014 until the summer of 2016. The thing about Matt Brown though is that I feel like his specific gimmick keeps him around longer than like, you know, somebody else who might be be viewed as lost property by the UFC just because uh you know he's down to go in there and scrap with anybody. He's he's typically really hard to take out. He's just a hard-nosed dude uh who seems to just really take pleasure in the fight game. Uh and at this point I would say if anything at all is going to be a limiting factor for him it might just be age because he's 35 years old. But like even though he's 1 and 4 now, I would expect Matt Brown will be out there fighting somebody else you recognize in his next fight. Yeah, going to show up there with that taxi driver haircut, uh, look at all mean and whatnot. I th- you're right. I mean, people are just totally into what Matt Brown brings, and it seems like he's the kind of guy that the UFC is also going to be totally into. Chances uh, are he's going to stick his foot in his mouth a few times between fights, and sure. then we'll forget about it, and he'll go back out there and, and, and continue to, to whoop ass. And by the way, uh, that was Stephen Thompson's second UFC fight that he lost to Matt Brown. Okay. Sophomore slump then. Yeah. The Wonder Boy. First one, he head kicked Dan Stitkin. Uh, then competition jumped up considerably when you think about it. Faced Matt Brown in his next fight, which was his, his seventh professional MMA fight. Well, that's going to do it for this week's listener mail. If you have questions, comments, concerns that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes in the MMA world that we miss on all those days we're not recording the podcast. Something always happens. Uh, it's short. It's informative. We would like to think it is funny uh and if you don't like it it's really easy to unsubscribe as for right now though we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one Well, Ben, at least prior to UFC 201, I think if Robbie Lawler and Tyron Woodley had fought in a vacuum, that almost everybody would have picked Robbie Lawler heading into it. But we talked a lot about, on last week's show, 
the way this just kind of seemed like the one that if Robbie Lawler was going to lose a fight and drop the UFC welterweight title, and this might be the fight for it to happen. Uh, it just seems, you know, uncanny how often this kind of stuff happens in mixed martial arts where you've got a guy heading into a, like what seems like a fairly low profile pay-per-view uh, against an opponent that, that hasn't been around for 18 months and therefore is, is at perhaps the lowest profile time during his UFC career, but is otherwise a pretty dangerous guy to fight. And then it's, this seems like the one that we just want the champion to get through so that, that we can have the fight that we really want. In this case, that would have been Robbie Lawler against Wonderboy Thompson. Uh, and it just feels like in this sport, man, if you're going to lose one, that's going to be the one. Yeah. And then that, uh, that proves to be correct in this in this instance as Tyron Woodley goes out there and stops Robbie Lawler in the first round in two minutes and 12 seconds, uh, lands a huge punch and follows it up with strikes on the ground until the referee has to jump in there uh, and save him. Ben, why is this sport so weird like that? Well, you know, when you look at this one on paper, I think – even the people who said Robbie Lawler is definitely going to win this, I think you'd acknowledge that if Tyron Woodley was going to win it, this is how he was going to do it. You know, he's he's super dangerous in those early rounds. We know he has that power. The question is just, could he catch Robbie Lawler with it? And it seemed like, you know, Lawler just got, uh, I don't want to say lazy, but a little complacent there uh, and left himself in that in the range uh, for that right hand, right, as he just kind of faded right into it. And... You know, I'm sure Lawler's going to feel like, man, if I can get that one back, I'm, I'm sure it was just a lucky punch. I'm sure I can, I can win it if they give me another shot at it. Uh, what I thought was interesting, and I was working on a piece about this earlier, was how quickly Tyrone Woodley went to, all right, here's what I want to do next. It was like he's immediately the champion. He's not even going to play around like, hey, whatever the UFC wants, or I'll fight all the contenders, you know, one through ten right there in order, just line them up for me. That man has a plan for himself, and that plan is to make some damn money with the belt. Yeah, and I noticed he caught some flack for that. Obviously, he called out George St. Pierre, who is currently ensconced in semi-retirement. Uh, he's in seclusion in the West Wing. Uh, and he also called out Nick Diaz, who as of today, as of the recording of this podcast, is is a free man. And has served his suspension in the state of Nevada, uh, and is is able to come back and be an active fighter again. Uh, and people, I guess maybe people just wanted to see the Wonder Boy Thompson fight so badly that it seemed like there was a you know the way fans sometimes overreact to stuff. There seemed to be a current of uh, people saying that Tyron Woodley was trying to duck Wonder Boy Thompson and all this stuff. Uh, and frankly, I don't know how you come around to that conclusion after watching a dude go out there and knock out Robbie Lawler. Uh, and also, I, I don't see how you can possibly be mad at Ty Tyron Woodley after being disrespected earlier in his career and having to wait seemingly so long to get his shot at the welterweight title uh, for going out there and trying to call out some fights that he feel like, feels like will make him some money. Well, you know, not only can you not really blame him, I think, but... One of the things that, that I was writing about and looking at this situation is he is paying attention. The UFC is, is approaching matchmaking and its kind of general strategy this same way by looking at, okay, what are the fights that are going to make money? Like Conor McGregor, Nate Diaz is a perfect example of that. 
you know, we know why that fight happened in the first place. We know why it's happening again. It's not because it's super relevant to any division or anything or because we're looking at match number one versus number two and so forth all the way on down in the classic sporting sense. It's because we're trying to make some damn money over here. And so if the company's champions start adopting the same mentality that the UFC itself has, I just, you know, it reminds me of those old uh, anti-drug commercials, you know, where the guy finds his kid has a bunch of like drug paraphernalia and he's like, who taught you how to do this? And the kid bursts out. You, all right. I learned it from watching you. That's exactly what's happening here. They, you can, the, the fighters can see what's going on just like we all can. And they say, all right, the UFC likes to do this stuff. They look around for the big money fight. Who's the most popular, famous person who's going to bring the most views. So, all right, I'll do that same thing to benefit my own financial situation. And you can't really blame them because that's what the UFC has taught them to, to think like. Yeah, uh, and we should say that Tyron Woodley has never given any indication other than being uh, a pretty sweet dude all the way through his his MMA career. Uh, he's got a couple of kids, I think, and as a as a fellow parent, I totally understand how a guy who maybe felt like he had been overlooked while working his way up through the ranks would now be like, okay, now it's time to make a little bit of money. Yeah, uh, I totally can empathize with that feeling. I also wonder. If it's kind of a shrewd move by Tyron Woodley, uh, and I don't know if he thinks about it this way, or if his like if his the competitive nature of of his of the way his brain must work, like all these athletes do, would would allow him to think about it this way. But it almost seems shrewd to me because Tyron Woodley is maybe not the guy the UFC mapped out to have as its champion right now. So I feel like it is kind of like uh, a clever angle for him to be like, well, how about I fight? any one of these guys that you would absolutely love to have as your champion. Like, yeah. How about we do that? You know, but it does, it sucks for a guy like Steven Thompson, who has absolutely, I think, proved that he deserves to fight for the welterweight title. And then to basically tell him like, you know what? You're not going to make me enough money. Therefore, I'm going to go in a different direction here. Here, Nick Diaz just got off suspension and doesn't have a win since like 2011. But I'm going to go ahead and fight him because it'll be more profitable for me. And I would be upset with that if I were Stephen Thompson sure. because I just feel like, so wait, just being really good at fighting isn't enough? That's not enough to, to help me out here anymore? Uh, or even like Robbie Lawler, who, who could have a strong case for a rematch after the, the, the title run that he had and how much blood he poured out in that cage for the UFC. So, you know, I could understand why a lot of those people – who are being directly affected by it would be kind of upset with that strategy. But I also think they all get it and they all understand exactly what he's after there. Uh, and you know, you'd be a fool not to think like, all right, Hey, once I have this belt, this has been the whole goal, right? Is to get this belt because that's where the real money is. And I have to be the one to focus on how to monetize that belt because I can't just sit back and think like, all right, I'll just fight whoever the UFC wants and hope that at the end of the day, there's a bunch of money in my bank account. Like, we want these fighters to be a little more shrewd sometimes, and this is a good example of it where he's picking out and saying, look, I have to make my own plans for what is going to get me paid because who else is going to do it? Yeah, I guess when I say I don't see how you can be mad at Tyron Woodley for calling out Nick Diaz and George St. Pierre, I guess – if you happen to be ranked in the welterweight top five, you are exempt from that comment. I, I actually totally could see how you would be mad about it. But he also, he had kind of a sweet burn on that one where he, when asked about Stephen Thompson, was like, well, hey, didn't Stephen Thompson say that he, he hoped Robbie Lawler would win because he felt like that would be a better fight, uh, him versus Robbie Lawler? Well, now they, they can have that. Yeah, there you nice. go. Nice work, T. Nice. Wood. Yeah. Uh, at first blush, this, which is just another in a long 
string of UFC title upsets seems like it's just the latest installment of like casting another UFC division into chaos. But I think as we've been kind of talking about the last couple minutes, when you start to think about this one, I feel like it also suddenly makes the welterweight division feel awesome though. And not that the welterweight division didn't feel awesome under Robbie Lawler, because we've talked at length about how his emergence as champion felt like a, uh, you know, it breathed some new life into the division after George St. Pierre uh, dominated it so long. But like, you start thinking about fights for Tyron Woodley, and I feel like almost anything could happen. And, and a lot of those fights seem like they would be awesome. Like a rematch with Robbie Lawler, I would watch that. You know, you could have Stephen Wonderboy Thompson fight Robbie Lawler if you still wanted to do that. Wonder Man. You could have Robbie Lawler fight Nick Diaz in a rematch. Because I don't know if you remember this, but Nick Diaz made Robbie Lawler fall straight on his face. I do remember the that. The first time they fought. Uh, and I think Hashtag would watch. I think Robbie one. Lawler had hair. You also got a lot of guys in the mix like Rory McDonald. We don't know what his future holds, but do his prospects in as, as title challenger suddenly improve if he decides he wants to turn around uh, and return to the UFC? Uh, you know, Carlos Condit is out there with a fight booked, but if he wins that one, you assume he's right back in the mix. So I feel like even though Robbie Lawler lost as champion, the the possibilities for a Tyron Woodley title reign also still seem pretty awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think that the when George St. Pierre left that division and we were kind of, it was a breath of fresh air a little bit because it felt like, well, now anything can happen. And when you, when you do look around at a lot of those potential matchups, it's hard to find a bad fight in that bunch. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff that I absolutely would not mind seeing. I think it's going to be really interesting, though, to see what direction the UFC wants to go in. Like, if if Tyron Woodley ends up in the cage with Nick Diaz, then that really tells us, like, all right, we are we are out here just just doing stuff to make everybody some money, which is what we kind of have been doing, and which is, you know, the reason it makes money is because people are interested in it, because, like, people want to see those fights. Um, but I think that will tell us a lot about what to expect moving forward. I can tell you one person that I don't think it will be. And you are not going to be happy about this. Oh no. I don't think you're going to see Tyron Woodley, Damian Maya as the next title defense. Why are you going to do this? Why are you going to go and break my heart like this? I know that this is a, an audio only show, but for those listening at home, a single tear just creeped out of the corner of Ben folks's eye and, and slid silently down his cheek. You know what? I, I'm just going to tell you right now, I don't believe you. I think, I think DMMI is going to, he's going to surprise you. He's going to find a way in there. He's going to creep right into that title picture like a damn ninja. I mean, anything could happen, right? Injury wise. Let's do, are you fucking kidding me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, I don't know if you saw this. You were on the road, obviously over there in Washington. Uh, but Dana White went on the Jimmy Kimmel show and talked about what it was like to suddenly make $360 million or whatever it was from this UFC uh, sale. And uh, I just want to read you the quote, one of the quotes that he said. Okay. I can tell you this, White said, and this is the honest-to-God truth. When this deal closed, it bugged me out a little bit. I don't know. It just, when you make that kind of money, and my partners, I've been with them for 20 years, so now that's all going to change. I have new partners now. And yeah, I kind of Howard hughes myself up in a hotel room for a couple of days, didn't sleep or eat. It kind of freaked me out a little bit. What? Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? 
What's I guess happening there? The actual thing that I want to send the Are You Fucking Kidding Me out to is that we work in an industry that is so insane that a dude like Dana White can say this shit on national television that he, quote, kind of Howard Hughes himself up into a hotel room for a couple days and didn't sleep or eat. And it makes absolutely no splash when it hits the water. Just like <laughs> everyone's just like, oh, you know, okay, cool. That's just Wednesday in the MMA world. Are you fucking kidding me? Kidding me? That's a little weird. Well, Chad, my are you fucking kidding me uh, this week? I know you you heard about the fight between Ian McCall and Justin Scoggins getting scratched. Yeah, the Scog dog. Yeah, rough one. Caught a caught a rough one. Couldn't couldn't make weight there, but the response. From Ian McCall was interesting. After hearing that the bout was off uh, in a quote that was on MMA Junkie, he says, quote, As much as I like Justin, I want to be a expletive and say something, but whatever. Weight cutting isn't good for you. And if you don't do it right, he's young, so he's probably stupid about it. But he's a good fighter, so hopefully this won't tarnish his name too much. It's weird that I feel bad for him, but this weight cutting shit is horrible for you. I'm just getting it done because I'm getting paid. <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? How are you going to be so damn reasonable at this at this hour, at this me? juncture? fucking kidding me ian mccall seems like a dude who would understand how life might take you down some unexpected roads yeah i think you're right about that anyway that's gonna do it for round number one we'll be right back with round number two Chad, very important choice here that you have to make right off the bat before we start talking about World Series of Fighting 32 in my trip to Seattle. So this is a choose-your-own-adventure round of the co-main event podcast? You call it whatever you need to. Okay. I get to Xfinity Arena in Everett, Washington. Wait, have I been there before? Yes, you have. Okay. You saw uh, – it was not called Xfinity Arena back then, but you saw you came to that IFL that was at this arena. Yeah, I did. That's right. Was um, that uh, – did Chris Horodecki and Shad Learley fight at that? There you go. That's a good. That was a good fight. That was a good fight. And then afterwards, that's when we were hanging out in the hotel room with Chris Horodecki and a very drunk man challenged Chris Horodecki to try to break his grip. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it was a fun time for all. Uh, now I get there. I'm feeling a little peckish. Okay. I missed lunch, so so we're already getting to the hot joints to eat at in Everett, Washington that I teased at the top of the show. I'm inside the arena. I've got to choose from arena food. Oh, right. Okay. Um, I know where this is going now. And I get up to the concession stand and there's a sign that says basically like you you have a choice of two different kind of bratwurst and you're choosing who you think will win the main event between uh, Marlon Moraes and Josh Hill by which brat you want, to, you want to eat. Okay. Here are your choices. The Moraes brat has, you know, the brat itself, mashed potatoes, peas, corn, and caramelized onions. Peas? You heard me. Okay. Uh, the hill brat has the brat with French fries, gravy, and grated cheese, basically poutine on top of a, a bratwurst. What do you do there? I feel like they are stacking the deck in favor of Josh Hill here, because I think that's the obvious place to go. I will also say, man, World Series of Fighting really... uh on the cutting edge, the bleeding edge, I guess you would say, of in-arena in uh, promotional crossovers. Not going to sit here and tell you I didn't need a hill brought. How, I, did, how did that dude, that help him out in the fight? 
No. No, he didn't, he didn't win this. He got kicked upside his head. So no, yeah. it didn't, it didn't seem to help him very much. However, as I was standing there eating it, uh, a drunk guy came up to me and was just like, he, he stared at my, my bratwurst for a while and then was just like, what is that? And I, I told him about it. He took a long look at it and then he, he needed to know where to get one. And so I pointed him off in the right direction. Uh, was that dude wearing a Dundasso shirt? That dude was not the dude wearing the Dundasso shirt. Well, I guess the guy in the Dundasso shirt has some work to do. It was really tempting to when I saw the dude in the Dundasso shirt to poke him in the eyes and just hope that he'd get the joke. Yeah, just a little bit of humor there. Uh, was this your first time over at the World Series of Fighting? It was. How did my how, first event? For how me. did it go? What were your impressions? Well, you know, it's always kind of fun to get out to one of the smaller promotions, especially after you get used to how the UFC does it. Which, as we mentioned before, the UFC runs a really tight ship with the live events, which is both good and bad. And kind of the, the downside of that for media is that. You basically always know exactly how it's going to go and what you're going to get an opportunity to do and see and what you're not going to get an opportunity to do and see. So this was uh, a fun change of pace from that. Um, also, you know, with so this World Series of Fighting, you know how they do it. You know that the the undercard, the prelims are going to be stacked with a bunch of dudes that you never heard of, a bunch of guys who have sold local tickets, basically. Uh, and that's kind of their function on the card. But this one had some good fights. Had, and had some like even legit prospect fights. Uh, you know, a, there was a, a featherweight fight at the top of the prelims, uh, Hakeem Dawadu and uh, Marat Magomedov, uh, which was a good fight between two dudes who seemed like they could both be somebody someday. So there was some stuff, some, some good stuff worth seeing, but it's also, you know, you kind of feel for World Series of Fighting in a way because they're trying to find some way to get a little bit of attention out there. And it's tough. And especially tough when you're going head to head with the UFC. And there are people who are like, hey, I know, I don't know when the next time I'm going to get a chance to see something resembling big time MMA in my neighborhood is, but at the same time, kind of want to stay home and watch Bob Lawler do his thing. So it's tough for them. Sure. Yeah. And in the, in the vein of trying to get attention, the reason that you went out for this event was due to the brother against brother main event. Not uh, the main event. It was not the oh, no. not even the co-main event. Right, Marlon Morace, right, is the right. is the main event. But the fight, I mean, this is the fight that garnered the most attention for World Series of Fighting leading up to this event: the brother versus brother affair uh, between Carlos Fodor and his brother, whose real name is not Phoenix Jones, but who is an honest to god superhero. Is he still superheroing? Is that still going on, or did he hang up the the tights? Funny you should ask that, Chad, because. He did not really go out on patrol, as he calls it, uh, in the lead up to this fight. During camp. He's not yeah. patrolling during camp. He said camp. Ray Sifo asked him not to, uh, just, <laughs> just to cut down on the possibility that he might be stabbed or shot or something and the fight would have to be called off. And so he didn't do it. And, but he said he intended to get right back out there afterwards. But then, um, I, I saw he posted a video on Instagram after the fight. You know, he went out there, he, he fought hard, but he lost the, the unanimous decision. Uh, and he took it hard. He took that loss pretty hard. And he basically said that at least, you know, in his post loss mindset, he wants to focus on MMA now because he's always said that MMA is not his main focus, that it's kind of a way for him to fund the superhero activity. And the same thing his brother said about him was that, Hey, he could be really good, but he doesn't train full time. He trains when he has a fight coming up. He's not really growing as a martial artist. Uh, he's just getting ready to fight and kind of doing his own thing. And he says, you know, now he's going to dedicate himself. I think he said that he was going to try to take two years and just dedicate himself to MMA. But he is clearly a draw. And especially in the arena, 
you know, they announce him as Phoenix Jones. He fights as Phoenix Jones. Uh, and clearly he was a big deal in Seattle there for, you know, that people, a lot of people had clearly come just to see him. Uh, and big pop from the crowd. The crowd seemed more into this fight than pretty much any other fight on the card. So you can see that it, there could be a future for him if he really puts in the time. Because right now it seems like what he does, he's getting by on athleticism, basically, and kind of raw ability. Well, that's good news for the criminals of the Pacific Northwest, that's right? right? Phoenix Jones will no longer be stalking the streets. Well, you know, and he's always, like, you can tell that it's really just in his mindset. Because I'll tell you, I have a longer story coming out soon on this, but... Uh, the night before the fight, he was at a nightclub in downtown Seattle. He basically stays up as late as he can the night before the fight so that he can sleep the next day because he finds it difficult to sleep. Uh, and he also has some other reason for doing it. But I'm at the nightclub with him. We're at the club. Uh, I go out with him to his car. He goes out to get something from his car. We're walking to the car. It's like 1 o'clock in the morning in downtown Seattle. And there is some very drunk girl kind of stumbling around in the street while talking to some dude. And from a distance, it's tough to tell exactly what's going on. Like, does the dude know her? Is he looking out for her and trying to make sure she doesn't get hit by a car? Or does he see a drunk girl and thinks he might take advantage of her? And so he insists on kind of like stopping so we can keep an eye on this situation until the girl throws her arms around He's the guy. He's looking around for a phone booth. <laughs> right, Ben Fodor looking around for a phone booth. Well, he, I, well, you know, he until we see the girl we'll throw her arms around the guy, and then we're like, okay, and he's like, okay, it looks, it looks fine. It looks like this situation is fine. Um, and I was just like, are you? Do you do this all the time? Like, do you? And he was like, well, you know, you can't fight crime just when you feel like it. Yeah. Like, he's got his taser in the car. He can go get his taser if he needs to. Um, so a part of me wonders if he's going to be able to completely give that up. So you witnessed some Phoenix Jonesing going yeah. down. Wow. There's a little bit of Phoenix Jones in. So I know that you went out there to do this feature story about this this fight, about this event. I don't know. We don't want to get into too many spoilers about that. But this fight seemed to take on a very emotional uh, pallor, especially in the days leading up to the fight and then immediately after it. I saw a bunch of people online who seemed to think that, that it was unseemly, that it crossed a line somehow uh, from normal like MMA trash talk to uh to something that felt uncomfortable and a lot of people weren't going to watch it I think because of that at least they said they weren't uh and you told me previous that at one point Phoenix Jones told you that he had to explain to his son that he was angry at Uncle Karos uh leading up to this fight was that evident in the arena and could you tell that this was like an emotionally charged thing for all involved I could definitely tell because I had talked to them a bunch uh in the, the days leading up to the fight so I knew kind of how it was for them uh Tough to tell how much of that the crowd really got. You know, but then they did air in the arena a pre-fight, like, backstage interview with Phoenix Jones where he seemed either crying or on the verge of tears. Right. I saw that making the rounds on the internet, and that was one of the things where people were like, well, now I will not watch this. This has made me feel uncomfortable. Yeah, and there's a lot to potentially feel uncomfortable about, because especially because it seemed like I got the sense that Phoenix Jones did not really want to do this fight. That it was basically, you know, his his version of how it came together was Carlos and his trainer at you know at AMC Pancration, Matt Hume, both kind of came to the World Series of Fighting and were like, "Hey, how about let's do this fight now?" Uh, and according to Phoenix Jones's telling of it, is because uh, you know they had, he and his and Carlos had trained together a bunch, and Carlos thought, "Okay, I can beat him." Uh, it's a fight that there will be some appeal to it. It'll sell and I can make my win bonus. 
And that he says that, you know, they basically called him and said, like, okay, so you're ready to do this fight with you and Carlos? And he was like, wait, what? Um, but felt like he'd been called out and couldn't say no to it. Uh, and so I think that's where a lot of the emotions stem from for him. He also seems to be kind of just an emotional guy generally. Um, but it is a little bit weird because on one hand, you recognize World Series of Fighting, they need to look for something that's going to get our attention. I mean, got me out there. Uh, and... I would I would not have gone for the two title fights that they had at the top of the card, and at the same time there has to be some kind of line where it gets weird and we're we're not happy that you got our attention. I don't know if this is that line though because it seemed like kind of worked out for them. Yeah, it worked out for them. I don't know if it worked out for the Fodor brothers. Like they're you know they they had been training together right previous to this and then and then didn't obviously train together during the lead up of the fight, did you get the impression at all in the aftermath that any kind of beef had been squashed the nope. way it so often does, uh, after these MMA fights or because of like the family nature, the complicated family nature of this, did you feel like, uh, this was something that is going to persist between them? I did not get the sense that anything was resolved. They did not really, you know, there was no like in cage reconciliation. They didn't even do a post fight interview uh, and I think at least part of that was maybe they're worried about what Phoenix Jones would say because he, you know, he'll get worked up and he might say something that you, you don't want him to say. But, you know, I talked to Carlos afterwards and he seemed to feel not super great about the whole thing. Uh, he, he, you know, he said he didn't really expect it to resolve anything. I said, like, okay, are you guys going to talk about this now? And he said, I have no desire to talk to him and I'm sure he doesn't want to talk to me. Uh, and also, you know, I had to, deal with how the rest of the family felt about it because their mother was not supportive of it, did not want either one of them to do it. It seemed like most of the family was just kind of trying to wait it out and wait till it's over, didn't really want to watch it. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know how it's going to be for them going forward. It also seems like they they might just have a rocky relationship their entire lives no matter what happens. And somehow that was not cured by the public professional cage fight. <laughs> Interesting. Very strange. You know, I was talking to, I couldn't really hear it because of how far away from the cage I was, but I was talking to a World Series of Fighting photographer, uh, and, and general good dude, Ryan Loco, who was saying how all through the fight and even afterwards that Phoenix Jones was just talking shit to him. Uh, even though he lost, even though he lost pretty clearly, lost like 30, 26 on those scorecards, uh, and they're standing there waiting for the decision to be announced and he's leaning over saying like, how's your head? How's your head feel, Carlos? Is your head hurt? Want some ice? Uh, so yeah, it didn't exactly seem like like it was that moment in Warrior where the brothers kind of reunite. Well, I'm sure they'll get together with Nick Nolte and everything will be fine. Yeah, uh, that's kind of depressing. Thanks for that story. You're welcome. You know what will cheer people up will be our discussion of UFC Fight Night '92 coming up in round three. That starts right now. Ben, the denizens of Salt Lake City must be going absolutely crazy at the prospect of UFC Fight Night 92 featuring its featherweight main event of Yair Rodriguez versus Alex Caceres. Now you'll recall the last time the UFC tried to dip its toe into the Salt Lake City market, it appeared there on a Sunday. 
which didn't end up working out no. for the UFC. So at least we're going to move that one, right? We're going to get this one done on a Saturday yeah. per, per usual. But, uh, man, I tell you what, you look down the card of this fight night event, which does air on Fox Sports 1, and uh, this one is as free of recognizable names and bankable stars as perhaps you will ever see. Yeah, it's a little thin. Now, I know that Rodriguez is an exciting fighter and a guy uh, that the company would really like to establish as, as you know, a capital G guy at 145 pounds. Um and a guy that could eventually be important to the UFC's efforts to establish more of a foothold down in Mexico. Um, he gets this fight against Alex Caceres. It's just one of these ones where you, I don't really understand, you know, why Salt Lake City? Why on this day? And it seems like an event kind of lost, again, lost in the wash of all of the stuff that's been going on around the gala celebration of UFC 200. Clearly you fire that many promotional bullets. It's going to take a little while to reload, but uh, this looks like a tough sell to me, man, even on free television. Yeah. Well, you know, you're right that the, the matchup itself, Yair, Yair Rodriguez and Alex Caceres, that seems like it's going to be a crackerjack of a fight. And you put that one as the first pay-per-view fight on like a pay-per-view card or the featured prelim spot on uh, FS1, both, Spots that Yair Rodriguez has occupied in, in recent fights, and that feels like, oh yeah, we're we're getting the party started. Uh, it feels like a lot of fun, but you also feel like when you see it as the top one, you're like, hardcores know that's going to be a good time, but is it enough to get anybody except the people who are going to watch absolutely any UFC event? To, is it going to get them to pay attention? Like, hey, are you going to buy tickets when that one comes to town? I don't know. Yeah, uh, and you know, this is an, uh, you also look at the bout order here, and clearly this is one that signals to you that the, that we're really serious and, and maybe even doubling down on this whole UFC fight pass preliminary featured prelim thing. Cause you got Cub Swanson against Kawajiri, which is going to be your featured prelim of, uh, of this night on the fightpass.com. Uh, and that, that could be a fight that you might want to, you know, that, I mean, you might not want to do it. You want to keep it on the fight pass, I guess, because you want to try to sell subscriptions. But like that is a fight that, that would seem right at home on, on a main card, uh, that, that features such fights as Chad Dundas, Spirit Animal, Santiago Ponzanibio against Zach Cummings. Like you could throw Cub Swanson and Kawajiri up there, even though, you know, those guys aren't really in the, in the immediate discussion of the featherweight title picture, they're 145 pound fighters that people might know. Uh, and so like, you know, you could see that as a, uh, as a, uh, uh, potential or a fitting main card bout. But do we see again, really trying to keep some known guys down there on the fight pass portion? Yeah. And you know, I think that that strategy, uh, is a big help to fight pass and fight pass itself. Like just having that kind of digital imprint, uh, is I think one of the things that the UFC's new owners will probably be into. So yeah, I can understand why you want to make sure you reserve some good stuff there. Fight Pass. Um, it also seems to me like one of those fight cards where what do we figure out that there's a kind of existing fan base of like two to three hundred thousand uh, MMA fans who are just going to watch anything. Like you can put on the the shittiest possible fight card, and if it has the UFC brand on it, those two hundred to 300,000 people will always watch. Uh, and this feels like that's who's coming to this party and not a whole lot else. Uh, but which is kind of sad because I feel like 
the actual fight itself, especially the the top one, Yair Rodriguez and Alex Casares, or even like you know Dennis Bermudez and, and Honey Jason there, like there are some fights that are going to make for exciting action. And they're gonna probably gonna feel like trees falling in the empty forest here. Yeah, this could definitely turn out to be one of those cards that looks underwhelming on paper, and then turns out to have a bunch of crazy stoppages or whatever. Uh, you know that that's usually only half the battle, though, when it comes to booking these fight cards. Enough preamble, though, Ben. Let's discuss the topic that I know everyone wants us actually to discuss when it comes to UFC Fight Night 92, and that is another appearance in the octagon by 25-year-old Japanese phenom Teruto Ishihara. Now, we've been getting mad tweets about Ishihara pretty much since the day he debuted in the UFC, and I just want to read this email that we got today from Roland Bleasy about Ishihara and the t-shirt that he just recently put on the market. He writes, As I looked at the awesome, quote, I love my bitches t-shirt in my cart and pondered my fiancé's potential reaction to it. (laughs) This is already good. I realized Teruto Ishihara might be my favorite fighter, based mostly on his antics, which also made me wonder, one, is that so wrong? And two, how would that play if he became an actual contender? Dude's kind of a maniac. Disc and course, love the show since day one, are bleasy. Esquire. <laughs> wow. Well, I'm glad we got that email read on the show somehow. Um, yeah, it's true that uh, when you're running around talking about how no more cookie party and how you love your bitches, we're going to be into that as MMA fans. Uh, and then it also, though, seems like uh, we might... We might screw around and encourage a lot of the wrong behavior <laughs> somewhere down the line. That does seem like the kind of thing that plays a lot better on the undercard than it would yeah. if you're fighting for the title. I wonder how the bitches feel about it is what I want to know. Uh, it would be nice to get some feedback. We could hear from the bitches. Both on the uh, the general attitude of Teruto Ishihara and the, the, the t-shirt. I don't yeah. have the t-shirt in front of me or else we could provide a more detailed account of what it actually looks like, but... In my recollection, it has a picture of his face That's right. in the middle, and it says, I love my bitches over the top. And then there, I think there's some other text on there, too, but but I don't have that in my mind brain at the moment. Also, how do they occupy themselves when there's no more cookie party? You know, what do they do? The what Russian, about them? Russian novels. Who's thinking about the bitches? They, they read Russian novels, I think. Okay. That, that makes sense, actually. Gives you, you know, you got a lot of time on your hands. You, you, you want to dive deep into something to bulk off. I get it. It seems like that line... Of behavior from Ishihara uh, would get you in a lot of trouble were you someone else. Are yeah. we giving uh, Teruto a pass here just because uh, as a young featherweight contender, he just seems like he's such a fun-loving guy that, that uh, somehow it hasn't made everyone mad yet? Or what's going on here? I think part of it is that his, his genuine enthusiasm, you believe that he does love those bitches. He genuinely loves them, Chad. There's so a, there's just, a there's a re, there's a mutual respect that may not necessarily come through in the <laughs> the actual word choice, but there's something deeper that maybe we don't understand. That's that's what I'm willing to give him here. Well, speaking of something deeper, I guess we just uncovered the the idea that there's more going on here at UFC Fight Night 92 than perhaps we first thought. There you go. You want to do just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Sure, Ben. What is your just saying stuff for this week? Well, Chad, I'm going to stick with 
a World Series of Fighting themed Just Saying Stuff. Naturally. On naturally. account of I just went to the show. I was kind of hoping for that you would stick to the poutine theme, but... Uh, now, the undercard here had a fight between highly touted Greg Jackson fighter and general MMA prospect Phil Hawes. Ooh, I watched this. You I did? I watched this on the television. I saw your tweet about how it was about to go down. I did that thing that I always do where I'm like, do I have the NBC Sports <laughs> Network put on the guide on my computer, scrolled or on my uh, TV, scrolled down like 200 channels until I found it uh, and put it on just in time. And it actually, it dovetailed super nicely with the UFC 201 uh, pacing because I was able to watch the entire fight and then kick it back over to the UFC before the, the second fight of the pay-per-view began. Now, so you know that things did not go as planned for the, the hot prospect out of Greg Jackson's camp, who, yeah. who all those guys yeah. talk about. He, he got, went in there against Lewis Taylor uh, and got himself choked out. Now, interesting thing about Lewis Taylor, for one thing, he had a, a female supporter, I'm guessing wife or girlfriend, at cage side, very vocal in her okay. support for Lewis okay. from the from the word go, uh, had just a lot of really encouraging things to say about how, you know, don't, don't let him hit you, baby. Oh, let's wow. go, let's go, Lewis, let's go. So really we, fired up the entire time. We hope they knew each other. Yeah, well, I think she also had a, a homemade shirt promoting him. But I later learned with a little help from Share Dogs Jordan Breen when I no- remarked that Lewis Taylor had an odd nickname. Did you happen to catch his nickname? Um, I don't recall it off the top of my head. Lewis put the guns down Taylor. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. Now that's, that struck me as odd. Yes. Yeah. And I learned from Jordan Breen that his nickname used to be handguns with a Z at the end, but he was so dismayed by the rash of gun violence, especially in his native Chicago, that he changed his name to provide this message. Put the guns down oh. and presumably fight with your fists. So it's a positive message. That's right. Via nickname. I'm just saying, if we're going to start using nicknames to promote social and or political messages, things could get interesting real quick. And I'm also just saying, I am definitely not against that idea. Who needs another goddamn pit bull, Chad, when we could have someone rolling out here with a message about climate change stuck in their nickname? I'm just saying. Just saying. Wow. Okay. Uh, well, Ben, I don't know if you saw this this week because I know you had to catch up on UFC 201 in, in, a, in a quick fashion. But I, this week I'd like to talk about the moment that Francisco Rivera threw and missed a punch so hard that he fell down during his fight with Eric Perez. I believe I saw that one. And when you say that I had to catch up, I should mention uh, I owe a, a debt of gratitude to Sidney Jones from Bleach Report, who was sitting next to me on press row at the World Series of Fighting and was streaming UFC 201. So I got to look over her shoulder and watch much of it. Wow. Okay. Is, yeah. that, is that legal? Let's say that it is. Okay. Big up to Sidney Jones. Now, it's her problem if it's illegal. I was just sitting there. Ben, we all know that when a fighter throws and misses a punch so hard that he falls down, it's pretty awesome, yeah. right? Reminiscent of Tank Abbott being on the verge of winning the ultimate ultimate tournament before he just fell down and allowed Don Fry to choke him out uh, for the win. Anyway, this week, I guess I'm just saying to all the young, expire, aspiring uh, YouTube highlight reel editors out there, is there a quality MMA blooper reel on the internet? Because if not, I'm just saying... Hashtag would watch. Would watch. I'm just saying. They release it on VHS like they used to do with those NFL bloopers. Yeah. Put a little funny soundtrack could, to it. You could get it free with your subscription to Gracie Fighter Magazine. 
Yeah. Than a phone shaped like a football. There you go. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens at UFC Fight Night 92. And then I think we got a dead week. I think it is the last week with no UFC event on a Saturday between now and October. That's right. Because after that, you got UFC 202, and then uh, the train just starts rolling downhill from there. Yeah. So if you have any loved ones you need to see, something you need to say. Check in with Grandma this this, uh, couple weeks from now. Uh, As for us, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. So would you recommend the World Series of Fighting Experience to the... So if I'm living in suburban Washington outside of Seattle and the WSOF is going to come, do you think that I should, should throw down my money and go? Is there more there than just the cross? You know, I had a good time. If you, if you get it a free evening and a few bucks for the cost of the ticket, why not? I wonder what we're dealing with ticket